holy shit you know like we knew that was it you know and well no i won't go to back to slim yeah okay no no, no. yeah it'll be like a swear jar kind of a thing i'll pay you 50 cents every time i say (laughs) the s word Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. In this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on David Pajo, part one of a very special three-part Pajo series. Episode one is Seminal Pajo, favorites, firsts, and flavorings. That is Pajo's favorite albums of all time, his pre-slint metal outfits, and the myriad post-slint bands in which he's played where the members are on the lookout for that, quote, indefinable Pajo flavor. Stay tuned for separate episodes that focus on his sprawling solo career, as well as slint and related acts. If you know, then you know. But if you don't, then you're really in for a treat because tonight's guest was one of the founding fathers of emo and math rock with both Slint and Tortoise, not to mention his ludicrously prolific, insanely high-quality solo career, but just on their own, his collaborations with Billy Corgan, Bonnie Prince Billy, Gang of Four, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, and Royal Trucks would qualify the man as a Hall of Famer. David Pajo is a legend. In the next hour, we'll learn about what it was about the early Louisville punk scene that made David feel like he finally belonged, the totally uncool band he admits was his first ever concert, and why he feels a deep-seated need to leave bands. Okay, first things first, you guys need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all the real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly, to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Be sure to follow along with us chronologically as we go. The link to our legendary playlist is right there in the show notes. Coming up, we've got tons more Paho, Vashti Bunyan, The Association, and Anthony Fantano. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and click follow. And away we go then. Our guest tonight has engaged in, inhabited, mangled, discarded, and revolutionized a wide variety of musical genres throughout his many incarnations. A few of those being hardcore punk, electronica, folk rock, and indie pop. In fact, you know what? Let's just dump a couple more terms out there so we don't have to mention them again. And I give you my word on this, David. No more mentions of these two terms, post-rock and math-rock. That's it. They're out of the way. We're done with them. Now we can move on. The amount of work in this dude's discography is overwhelming and awe-inspiring, especially taken in all at once over a concentrated period discography style and it tells a surprisingly coherent story about the evolution of rock music over the last 40 years he's currently a member of gang of four which brings him full fuggin circle right back where he belongs because oftentimes as us thick-headed music maniacs know all too well you can do an easy rider voyage of self-discovery but you're only going to gain a full understanding of the big picture once you pull back into your own driveway Lads and ladies, let's embrace the cringe-inducing adulation that comes with being a hopeless fanboy and extend a warm, warm welcome to that flesh-and-blood prism of taste and influence, softly spoken by carrying a big stick, the stick being an axe, and the axe property of the heart-meltingly empathetic and adept gentleman we all know, love, cheer, and root for, whether as M. Ariel M, Papa M, or of course, 
David Paho. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. So man. deserving of it, man. Yeah. This has been a big build, right? I mean, yeah. you and I started communicating two and a half months ago. Right. Wow. Yeah. And you've been researching and, and listening to all the stuff I've done. And within that time frame, that's a task. This is probably the most well-researched interview I've ever done. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I could just say that I've been boning up and then, you know, show up and be a complete idiot loser. So don't give me too much credit quite yet. <laughs> I mean, just putting in the hours of listening is like a, a lot, even if it's background music, you know. As somebody who cares quite deeply about music, I mean, in a lot of ways, Slint is the ultimate band with integrity. At least, that, look, that's what we'll, we'll get to Slint. But it seems like I can't think of any other band where it's like the writing's on the wall. You guys are producing works of inarguable greatness, inarguably moving at, at a very fundamental level. But yet it feels like you can't have a discussion about why the band didn't soldier forth without talking about aspects of integrity that unless you're an artist, you just can't understand or connect with. And that's why there was no other way except to be like just ludicrously overprepared. Wow. Gosh, thank you very much. I appreciate okay. that. So the way that I've figured on kind of chopping this up feels like it makes sense to me. This would be the seminal episode. So the works that really paved the way for you. And then a quote that I really, really love by you, which, you know, seems to be the way forward after your favorite albums, which is like, well, here's the quote. So I guess when you keep working on something for a long time and eventually you keep taking away all the unnecessary things, you end up with nothing. I said that. You said that about the members of Slint trying to agree on a textual overlay for the band photograph. And then right. when it came down to it, there was nothing left. Yeah, I feel like that approach was, you know, sort of applied to every aspect of the band, sometimes even now, where, you know, it's always about taking away rather than always you know, I feel like a lot of bands are, are just like always dumping more and more options. And we're always trying to reduce, you know, even when we were mixing or live sound or anything, like, I don't know how many like live sound engineers or when we were recording Spiderland, I remember Brian Paulson saying like, you're the only band that tells me to turn things down, like to turn themselves down, you know, because I think there's the egotistical musician always wants to be louder than everybody else. And we're, we're always like, I, I'm really loud, you know, can you bring me down? Especially Especially with uh, kids, I mean, because, you know, yeah. are typically jockeying for position. It's not a self-effacing attitude towards collaboration. Right. We were definitely weird in that way, even even now, you know, so. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. I mean, so like, you know, we're, we'll talk about your influences and then, you know, the steps that you had to take to remove those influences. And I think you did right. pretty commanding job of it because the stew of your influences and you know the extent of your love for music i would imagine just based on the styles in which you're capable of playing are so extensive but you probably had to brick by brick remove all these giant monster clouds that were hanging over you in order to be who you are. I mean, you have a very specific way of playing. For sure. That was an interesting time when I, I, I always describe it as, or I think of it as like unlearning how to ride a bike, you know, which, how do you do that? You know, you have to, you just, you completely have to forget your history and everything you know, and just try to look at it you know, with fresh eyes and approach things without going into default mode. It was tricky, I think, but also I was inspired by a lot of great, you know, musicians and not even musicians a lot of times. Like sometimes it would just be writers you know, or a poet or something. What writers were big forces for you? You mean back in the Slint days or? Not necessarily Slint, even before Slint or what were some forces for you that were, you know, ineffable in your creative pursuits? Before Slint, I think I was, which, you know, we're talking like, 14 and 15. I mean, I was definitely into punk, but it was, I also got really into surrealism and Louis Bunuel and, you know, like, and, and not, not just the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The eye, the eye. Yeah. yeah, not just the art of surrealism, but like the attitude and the, the movies that they made and the literary things they did. I liked hearing about them going on holiday together or vacation together, you know, and like all the weird things they would do while they were partying at the beach or whatever, you know. So I was into that and like the beat writers, of course, you know, like before Slint, I was into, you know, William Burroughs and 
Kerouac and all all the greats. I got to hang out with Burroughs, which was just unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. And like the precocious 21-year-old, I actually took out a tape recorder because I figure, you know, with Byron Geisen and why would I need to ask him if I could tape record? He espouses tape recording. So I just pressed record and put it on the table between us. Uh -huh. I believe I did that without even asking in his house. And I have the whole thing on tape. Amazing. He didn't bat an eye when you did that? He didn't. No. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the most incredible experiences in my life. Those guys were, you know, Philip K. Dick, plus all the beats, definitely humans on me too. You never had a desire to drive across the country until you read on the road, you know, like, I think that's pretty common for a lot of people. And of course, like the stuff we were forced to read in school, like Native Son and Catcher in the Rye. I, I remember reading Catcher in the Rye when I was, I was in eighth grade and I'd just gotten kicked out of school. And I was reading Catcher in the Rye and he had gotten kicked out of school and he was like laughing at farts and stuff. And I was like, wow, I can, I think I like books because <laughs> I could relate, you know, so much with Holden Caulfield. If you can't relate to him, then you're going to probably have an easy time going through life. If you can. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your dad's Nanding, right? That's like his nickname. His name's Fernando, but I guess okay. they, they shorten it to Nandi and then it becomes Nanding. It's a Filipino thing. I never quite understood. But your mom is Darlene? Darlene, yeah. Darlene, okay. Of course, I only know from Tweez, but was it a, a super music intensive youth that you had or were your parents? Not at all. Never? My mother is like, even now still talks about, she always... And like she's like, I don't know where you got your musical talent from. <laughs> and I think maybe it was just from being a middle child, you know. My dad's from the Philippines. Like he he still has a really strong accent. My mom's American. She's from Detroit. Her mother was Polish and her father was German. So she's very pale. So I'm, you know, we're all like we're all mutts. I guess I'm more like my dad in a lot of ways. But yeah, it's I don't I don't know where the music came from, but I was definitely into it immediately. Like the sound of drums and electric fuzzed out guitars or whatever was it was so alien and, and exciting to me you know i feel like i was like butthead on caffeine you know how he just freaks out you know i would freak out when i heard these sounds you know you didn't start playing guitar at you know, four years old or anything you actually came at it a little bit later right and then made yeah up. what was your holy shit moment where you knew this was it it took a while i was always interested in drums and i couldn't get a drum kit so i would take those big old baskin robbins gallon things do you remember those like, like, I don't know if your family ever bought those giant gallons of ice cream from Baskin Robbins, but I would save them and add a pair of drumsticks and I'd turn them into a drumstick. So I guess all through elementary school, I was into drums and rhythm and practicing drums. And then I finally got a drum set when I was 13 and didn't really do much with it other than play it all the time. And then, I mean, I didn't play in bands or anything. And then when I was 14, I got a $90 guitar and it turned out I was better at that. For some reason, that was way easier. You know, I could do basic stuff on the drums. For some reason, like guitar, it was hard for like a couple months and then suddenly nothing was hard. <laughs> I don't know what happened. And I've been noticing this just because my son is now interested in guitar, but he doesn't have the drive like I did. I don't even know if it was drive. I just, I would just lose hours of time just playing one thing over and over, you know, and I would, I, I never thought of it as like, I'm practicing for hours. It was just, it was the only thing I was interested in. So I, I guess I may have played a ton and not realized it because I didn't realize how much I was playing guitar, but at one point I remember it was really hard for me to go from a, you know, a D chord to an open G chord. And once I figured that out, like everything else, like I could solo and stuff out. It was just, everything was really fast. That's amazing. Yeah. I guess everybody has their thing that just comes natural to them, but I thought it would be drums. Were you playing scales? Were you playing covers of songs coming up with your own stuff? Yeah. At a turntable that had, it played at 33 and a third. 78 and 16 rpm huh. so or, or, and 45 as well but so 16 was like almost an octave lower so i could get you know i'd figure out eric clapton cream li the, the live cream album i'd figure out his solos by playing them at 16 rpm and i could hear all the little details that would be missed if just at normal speed so you're not hooked up with freaks yet not at all yeah going I mean, down a classic rock path yeah, 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 totally. But I mean, I was an I was a freak myself because it was I was getting into more and more extreme music. But I didn't have anybody 
turning me on to stuff, I would just go and get records, you know, and I, I, I'm like, I got the Venom record when it came, when it was new in 1982 or whatever, just because I was like, oh, this looks scary. I got to get this. And, you know, so, so I think I was just kind of a natural freak too. Like I was attracted to stuff that was maybe darker or whatever. Like uh, one thing I think that I should mention is that I did take guitar lessons at one point. And I think there's some, some myth in Louisville that I took one guitar lesson and then I, and I learned everything I needed to learn and then, and didn't take any more. And it, it's sort of half true because I did take a couple lessons, but he was the greatest teacher, really. He would have me just bring in a record of a song I liked. And he said he would show me how to play the guitar part on it. And I think I brought in, I think it was Led Zeppelin. I brought in something like Black Dog or something. And then, and he would just listen to it, the record, and he'd go back and he'd figure it out. And then he'd show me how to play it. And so by watching him use his ear to figure out records, I learned how to do that myself. So after a couple lessons in different bands, I was like, wow, I can do this. So I would figure out my own songs I wanted to learn. And he just by example showed me how to do that. And that's kind of an amazing way to teach someone because now that's part of why I, I can play in so many different kinds of bands because I'm, I'm used to... You know, my whole life, I'm used to listening to a song and then trying to figure out how to play it on my own. And not, I don't look up tablature and stuff. Like, I know that's what my son does and, and all that. I don't trust anything else. Like, I just, I just figure it out myself. And I think learning how to use my ears like that or just listen, learning how to listen like that was, was such a huge thing. I'm so glad that I had that experience, you know. It's amazing to me that you're able to play or you're able to assimilate in all these different kinds of situations because your style of playing i mean yeah if i heard you without the singing i would kind of know that it was you and amazingly it's based entirely on feel even though you would need to have overwhelming technique to be able to go from interpol gang of four yeah 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 these are very disparate situations to be zwan I mean, talk right. about like, you know, you're doing, you know, low the rose cease to bloom while you're doing Jesus I, which is right, right. Yeah. a mile away. You know, that to me is the most mind blowing thing about what it is that you do is that somehow at the drop of a hat, you can deconstruct the Pajo ingredient or sublimate it so that you can connect up with what's going on around you. So at that time, I know without getting too into the, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of Slint coming together, you know, Britt and Brian had each other, but did you have that guy who you had that symbiotic relationship with? At that time, it was, it was still, it was just me. I lived out in the suburbs and, you know, I'm a suburban kid and didn't really have a lot of people. But once I got into punk, because I, I think I hadn't been in any kind of music scene, really. I just knew some musicians in school, but not a scene. And I didn't really, I knew metalheads, but I didn't really bond with any of them and stuff. It wasn't until I found the punk scene in Louisville that like, I felt like I'd found a family in a way, because these guys were funny too. And they were wild, you know, like they, I just felt like I was understood, you know, we could all be freaks and weird on our own. And they really liked me because I could play drums and bass and guitar. And so I was like, playing with everybody's bands too they all needed somebody and i was i was immediately accepted yeah discovering punk rock i i guess for like a lot of people like probably yourself as well discovering punk was a pivotal moment maybe more psych than punk for me oh wow yeah i probably should have known from an early age that that i should have stayed far away from drugs because if you're <sighs> you're 13 years old and you know walking around with a walkman on listening to their satanic majesty's request right yeah there's choppy waters ahead potentially yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and plus like the beat poets and you know between all that I think drugs becomes a romantic thing for sure, or a romantic creative thing. And I think, you know, we're all kind of fell prey to it at some point, or not all of us, but um, I certainly went through a phase. There was a mystique around drugs that I had to figure out. To me, you know, Rambo, Verlaine, uh, Aldous Huxley, you know, these were ripe concepts before I knew what drugs did or anything like that, it all seemed like a path that had to be explored. It, ha it had to, because all the people that I loved and were excited about, I was single digit age picking up Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd and- Wow. Yeah, yeah, so- yeah, I didn't hear all that stuff till later. That's crazy. Well, I'm not that cool. My first concert ever was Brian Adams. <laughs> 
Mine was Triumph. That's really not cool. Nice, I mean, that's, nice. <laughs> it could be worse. It could have been White Lion. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess at least it was Triumph, but yeah. that's still not too good. <laughs> no, no. It's it's um, okay. You know, it makes the mythology of your early days, you know, a little bit more approachable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I grew up more of like in the metal world in, in Louisville, Kentucky in the early 80s, I guess. We're talking like 80 and 81 and stuff. That's all I was exposed to at that time. It wasn't until later that I even found out about this whole other world of music. I mean, I knew about the pistols and dead Kennedys and stuff because like in Stranger Things, the older brother that turns on the the younger brother to the clash or whatever my older brother turned me on to the clash and the pistols and stuff and i i liked it okay i thought it was funny i liked that they said bad words and yeah you know, i thought the lyrics were funny and they had a sense of humor that metal heads don't have that's kind of a harsh thing to say but that's probably my main gripe with metal is that there's kind of the lack of being able to laugh at yourself i mean there are some death metal bands that have a sense of humor i don't know how respected they are in the metal world <laughs> yeah. so when you did discover punk and metal was it an immediate thing where you're like this is the way and you stopped listening to classic rock and just flipped or did you augment your collection with this and still were able to appreciate everything else you'd been hearing I don't know if it's OCD or maybe a type of OCD, but like, I'm definitely an extremist. More so when I was younger, uh, like if I got into something, I got fully into it and blanked out everything else. I think I wanted music that was faster and harder, you know, and just more. I wanted something more and more extreme. And that just led me to punk. And then, you know, there was a time when I was embarrassed about like that. I liked ACDC at one point and I'd, I'd hide my ACDC record. And then later all that stuff was like, oh yeah, no, it's just music is just music. It took me a second to figure that out. And if you like it, it's good. And also one thing I loved about punk was that it was just like this umbrella term for anything that was different, really, or below the radar. Like now punk is considered a musical style, but I feel like then, at least in where I grew up, you prided yourself on not sounding like anybody else. And it was about sounding like yourself. And it could be anything, you know, you could be wimpy and dorky. Or you could be extreme and GGL and lighting your hair on fire, you know, like, yeah. or you could just paint your whole self red and that's your show. It was an attitude, I suppose, you know. Were um, you listening to Prague too? Because when I hear Maurice, I'm hearing what sounds to me like multi-parted. All right. It almost feels like Yes Relay or some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I mean, there was one Mahavishnu orchestra song that I liked, but I wasn't listening to a lot of stuff like that, really. I always liked like weird time signatures and dissonant melodies. I don't know where that really came from. With Maurice, it was Brit and I really kind of feeding off each other, you know? So, you know, I'd come in with this riff and it would be like, I don't know what time signature it's in, but good luck coming up with the beat for this thing. Right. And then he would be like, oh, you can play that, but why don't you add another note and make it 1113 or something, you know? And we, we didn't actually know what the time signatures were, but I guess we were sort of fucking with each other. By I would try to make it more and more complicated so that if he played a 4-4 beat over it, it would never land in the same place. And it was really fun, you know? And I think we were just both kind of musically pushing each other you know i might write a riff and he'd be like why don't you put in these notes that sound really wrong like this one you know and we just do the things that we felt was wrong and try to make it right somehow <laughs> you know one of the magic tricks that you guys were able to pull off and again i'm trying to kind of dance around slint at this point is that with any kind of tricky time signature there's that danger of pulling away from the emotional component of music and uh, having right. lodged purely in a cerebral place but your music was so unavoidably fraught with feeling and the aspect of you being able to have your cake and eat it too is endlessly impressive to me gosh yeah that's that's cool that you even noticed that because sometimes i think i i'm going for a non-emotional aspect but obviously i have to feel something to stay interested in a, in a song you know we would do weird time signatures but it still had this for maurice it still had to make me feel a certain way you know somewhat off-putting or maybe it should still rock you know know but yeah i think always having a an emotional aspect was always at the core of it the weird time signatures or some absurd melody over 
another riff that you wouldn't expect it to fit or whatever like that was all just kind of like wordplay for a poet or something you know right. it was all it was all just kind of fun but the emotion was the most important thing and that was always unspoken we never said that but i mean you know i wouldn't be able to point out a single song that steve Vai has ever played on that made me feel anything that's another point i think that's interesting is that I never, and this kind of dawned on me when I was playing in Tortoise that I don't really want to make music for other musicians. You know, I don't want to make music for music's sake. You don't have to know anything about music to appreciate it like something that I'm doing. I'm hoping, you know, like yeah. I don't want to go over somebody's head just for the sake of it or just to prove that I have chops or something, you know? Yeah, that was never interesting to me, which is why, like, I know diss on Steve Vai, but I don't, I've never listened to him and I, I couldn't really tell you what he sounds like. If I could boil your playing down to one really amazing magic trick, it really would be that because, you know, the tricky time signatures and the overwhelming emotional takeaway, those are not typical bedfellows. Yeah, I think that helps me even now that you mentioned it. I'm not only because I've been thinking about that recently. I'm, you know, I've been writing riffs to present to Gang of Four. And part of my way of filtering out the stuff that's uninteresting is to go back and listen to it and see if it makes me feel anything. Because I've come up with a bunch of stuff that's like on guitars would be interesting to play or for other guitarists. But is it any good though? Like, does it make me feel a certain way or would it inspire the other guys in Gang of Four? I've been thinking on those same lines recently, just because I'm kind of trying to choose the best ideas. And if it's like fancy guitar playing, that's fine, but as long as it makes you feel a certain way. And in doing all the research for this, I'm going through a lot of really intense stuff, intense feelings over moving and doubling down on this show versus having a sane outlook toward life, like having a job and things like that. You know, your work is soundtracking this. And there's some times where, like yesterday, I wanted to leave Spiderland to the last. I've heard it like, you know, a million times, but I was scared to listen to it because yesterday uh, I was having a really up and down emotional day. That record in the wrong for my mind is terrifying. That's for right. Holds a power that's like weather in the Midwest. Like you got to stay in and shut the fucking doors and not open them. That's crazy that that, I mean, cause I have that same feeling towards that record. I can't listen. I, I mean, I don't really listen to it. I know it inside now. If I am going to sit down and listen to it, it's a little bit scary. You know, it is something that I don't think you can do it casually and like really yeah. appreciate it because it's a world. It's like a whole world that you go into and a whole journey. And my favorite records are like that. And I feel super blessed to have been on one of those records in my life. You know? I, and, by the and, way, I just, Nastanovich just texted me. Uh huh. Cause I, I wanted to know if he had a question he wanted to ask. Cause I know he's a big fan. Oh and Yeah. He said, Tell him no, I said, hey, he said, I, I know the story. It's OK. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was in Louisville long enough to <laughs> know all the people involved, because I feel like um, and this was also unspoken with with Slint, at least, or my friends, Britt and Brian, like I think we used like weird time signatures or repeating a, a riff, you know, three and a half times instead of four times. I think the whole idea to do that was not to show off our prowess, but to make it feel organic because, or at least for me, like I love when people are good at improvising and I just never had that talent. So I have to kind of write it into the songs, mm -hmm. you know, so, so that it, if it feels natural to you, like if you hear a Delta blues guy, he's not playing, you know, four four all the way through he might hang on to a chord a little bit longer this time around or you know he's going by feel we tried to write the songs as if they were by feel you know as as if we were you know like okay we're, we're tied to this rip now we're falling into this one you know so it would all have to feel natural unless we were trying to make you feel like all unsettled or something you know which is pretty frequent i need drama mean when i listen to your music yes yeah, spiderland is pretty much an unsettling it's something asymmetrical about it you know one interview that I did a, a while back, the interviewer told me that he had, this is interesting, I think, just to show how dark Spiderland is. He said that he loved Washer and he always loved the words, but he couldn't tell what Brian was saying sometimes. So he wrote down the lyrics and he would like pick up the needle and put it back. So he stayed up and he, and he wrote all the lyrics. And then the next day, 
his girlfriend came in with what he'd written and thought he was suicidal and was like, thought that was his suicide note, which is so brutal. And then I never thought of that song like that. And then I listened to the lyrics and I was like, yeah, I guess if I saw that, I would probably be worried about that. You know, my toes are warm. I'm safe from harm. (laughs) It's like, oh shit, this guy is, he's ready to call it quits. I mean, Um, there's a lot of stuff on fight songs that could easily be misconstrued in that way. Oh, really? I, I mean, I haven't heard that in so long. Fight songs in the canon of your work, the most underrated by a long shot, I think. Wow. It's, it's the spiritual heir to Spiderland, I think. And right. I'm surprised that not as many people talk about it that way. Not that Four Carnation are forgotten, but I feel like the shadow that's cast by Slint is yeah. unfair. I feel like the Four Carnation, the iteration that you were in, especially, because I like Marshmallows and I, I like the rest of it. But the 15 minutes that you collaborated on is a very special piece of work. Oh, man. I love that time period, like in, when we recorded it and, and just where everybody's head was at then. But also, like all the Four Carnation stuff and the live shows, I, I agree with you. I'm glad that you appreciate them. I think that they are really underappreciated and they were, they were a challenging listen, you know, because oh, man. Yeah. even live people would leave. They would think that nothing was happening, but and he'd create such a thick, oppressive atmosphere in the room where people are just like, okay, this is not a normal show and I'm really bored. And it couldn't hold people's attention that were used to more stuff that was begging for attention. You know, I think TFC were great and I'm glad that you appreciate them too. What, so what's your favorite album of all time? Do you have a favorite that you could point to? Does favorite album mean that's my favorite right now? Like I would listen to it right now and it'd be my favorite album or my favorite album Both. when I was Both. growing up. The, what the most totemic piece of creative construction was for you that was the most difficult for you to dismantle so you could move on and discover who you were? Oh, that? Oh, I think, I mean, I was a Van Halen fan, so I think trying to take Van Halen out of my system was pretty rough. It wasn't rough. It, it was really easy to do, actually. I'm guessing it, not the Hagar era. Not, not the Hagar era. <laughs> you know, what's funny is that I saw I saw Van Halen in 1984 and they were great. And, you know, and they were at their, probably their most famous, I guess, maybe. Yeah. And Britt and Brian were at that show too, but I still hadn't met them yet. And then we met shortly after that. And then, you know, that's when my life really changes. When I started hanging out with Britt and that whole world, like that whole world, I feel like. I got to dance around that very carefully because what we're going to circle back to it. But would you say 1984 is one of your big ones that you've ever... Um, I, I guess it's the first two albums, first three actually yeah like the first four i I would you know i figured them all out note for note i've sat down with the turntable at 16 rpm and i figured i could play the probably the first five van halen albums note for note when i was 15 and 16 and i kind of came into maurice with that attitude like oh here's the riff but i can play a million things around that riff as long as i hit this chord at this certain time i could be sewing and then come back you know do the all this weird stuff and i also liked how he approached the guitar like you you didn't have to play it normal you could you know which is what i would do with slint sometimes i'd pick behind the fretted note you know or i would do a thing where i'd push string against the pickup and just make it like this weird tapping sound you know things like that where it's still musical it's not like within the 12 tone scale so i like that kind of stuff but when i found sonic youth it was like he's putting a drumstick under the string and and he's making they're really making these amazing sounds with weird tunings and as weird as it sounds like eddie van hill was just like a stepping stone to like almost like prepared guitar kind of playing or just approaching the guitar almost like a percussion instrument sometimes which i think andy gill kind of did because he had that weird kind of stutter that he would do i was just attracted to guitars that were always doing something different and that was like once again i'm talking about slint but that was before slint existed as a band we existed as a concept where i was talking to the bass player ethan and we were both like we just want to form a band that's different all these bands you know like this local band sounds like this other band and this other band that came in town nobody's doing anything different so let's do something that's really different and that was the main idea behind slint and interestingly there's precocious kids who try to show off you know look at how different we are look at how weird we are this is just theoretical but i feel like you guys were courting something 
courting a situation into being. And then this thing wound up taking on a life of its own. And if I was in any of your shoes, I think I would have felt the terror of this thing actualizing and almost literally swallowing me all. Yeah. You know, we weren't from that kind of YB normal scene. I don't know what else to call it. We weren't being weird for weirdness sake, but we definitely appreciated stuff that was unusual. So in, in Louisville, your first band, I believe that you were ever in is Obscene Routine, right? That's on Wikipedia. And I feel like that's a guy that I went to elementary school must have put that in because I don't even remember that. Yeah, that was just when I was before I even played guitar. That was when I was... 13 and still playing only drums and you know it's just a friend came over and we'd jam a little bit but okay, i had so it's, it's really 1986 then is maurice right well no when i was 14 i got the guitar and then almost immediately started playing with this band called profit we just did like led zeppelin and rush covers and stuff and it kind of blossomed into this top 40 band where it was like out of my control. It was like, we be, we started playing proms and stuff. And they were like, okay, we have to learn four sets. We have to learn Lionel Richie. We have to learn Prince. You know, all the hits. There's, gotta, the, and there's gotta be a recording extent of that. I, I think there's some video recordings of us. And I have one or two pictures. Like there's not many pictures of me with them. And I started getting into punk alongside of that. And so finally, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I was just like, okay, I can't play this kind of music anymore <laughs> but it you know in a way it was good for me because once again i was just figuring out other people's songs and i still played those songs my own way i, did, I never felt like i had to do it no like exactly like the song but that was a really that was a really silly band and that was pre-maurice and i'll send you a photo you'll laugh your head off just how you look how we all look i think we're all wearing like ballet shoes <laughs> <laughs> of course of course that makes total sense <laughs> Like white leather ballet shoes. They were really. <laughs> well, I know, you know, I listened to The First Shall Be the Last, 1985, right, Maurice? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, so that's Brit on drums, you on guitar. I believe your best friend at the time, Mike. Bukai. Mike Bacaglia, yeah. Mike. Yeah, he was my best friend for sure. So he's on bass and then Sean Garrison on vocals. Right. Uh, on the one writing those songs? No, like actually Brian McMahon played guitar before me and Maurice. He wrote a couple of the songs, you know, and they were just kind of like punk songs. And then and then he left because he was committed to Squirrel Bay. He'd started playing in Squirrel Bay and he just and he left. So they needed a guitar player. And I have a cassette of my first practice with them, which was in 84. And I didn't think it was a big deal, but I already figured, I already learned how to play all the songs. And I guess they didn't realize that. <laughs> so I came in and I first time playing these songs with them and I and I played them all, you know, like it's way tighter than I thought it would be than when I listened to the cassette because I was improvising stuff and Brit and I would improvise at the same time. Like he would do a drum fill and I'd be, I would be doing the, almost like the, the guitar equivalent of that fill on guitar at the same moment. It was like, you know, listening to that tape is cool. Not the one that's online. This is a different one, but it was cool to listen to Brit and I playing for the first time because we did have some psychic connection right away. You know, yeah. Was, yeah. No, I mean, you know, admittedly, metal is not really my thing. I like some metal, yeah. but it's I'm not all in like you. But you can tell that a that the this is some seriously adroit playing, but also that the songwriting is complex on levels that would not lead you to believe that these are kids and uh, yeah. that's obviously something that comes up again and again through the late 80s into the mid 90s is how are these people so young and making music that's beyond mature yeah that's that's a mystery to me because brit and brian were younger than me too like a, yeah. a year or two younger than me and brit was playing rock mountain off on piano back then right. and stuff so he he was definitely like musically versed in a way that i wasn't i didn't i mean i knew some classical piano not very much you know but i could play piano a little bit or read music when you first started playing with those guys was it an obvious click almost like an audible snap of jigsaw puzzle pieces totally yeah like even at the end of the tape you can hear brit screaming like with with excitement he's literally like wow <laughs> let me finish the tape but the tape that you heard the first shall be last was a thing we did because our singer was friends or you know was pen pals with glenn danzig and he asked him and glenn asked him for a cassette of his band just to see what we sounded like if we wanted to open for him so on a tour for sam hayne on a tour right, so right. we recorded that on, on a jam box and that's what we sent to glenn was what you heard 
okay. the first shall be last. So is this is this a band thing where the band is writing the songs all together, or is it Sean's? Oh, oh, the songwriting. I think by the time that tape was done, Brian had written some riffs and Britt had written some. And by the time we did that tape, it was mostly Britt. And some of my songs were in there, some of my riffs. Britt and I were definitely writing together at that point when that tape came, were okay. that tape that you heard. There's some other tapes that I have that I need to put on Bandcamp where it shows the transition from Maurice to Slint way better because, you know, Britt and I got really into Big Black and we started writing these Maurice songs that are, you know, kind of blatant Big Black ripoffs, you know? And Is then Solution I got unknown. In. Do you see that as veering more in that direction? Solution I know was I well, I played drums with them. I could play that style of drums. I feel like I was always in multiple bands at once because as much as I love playing guitar, playing drums in a band is really fun too. So I always play drums with another band or a couple of different bands. So when Slint was happening, gosh, I Are think you always I'd, reading five books at once too. Yeah, yeah, totally. You could never do that. I'm embarrassed to even show you the stacks of books just throughout my house, you know, just stacks of them, all of them with bookmarks. <laughs> I, I always tried to do that, but I was always like a dude with blinders on. It was always one at a time. Well, that seems wiser to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Grass is always greener. I've always envied people who are able to have that kind of juggling frame of mind to be able to do that. I think, I mean, even now, like one of the reasons that I eat just for comfort, you know, like I, I, I really enjoy comfort food and it's really a bad habit, but I, I have all these different books on my table because I'm like, what mood am I in right now? Like, do I want to read this kind of book or this, you know? So I think it's sort of like that, like, do I want to pick up where I left off on this one or am I more in a whimsical mood and I want to read this, you know? So it, with Solution Unknown, the only thing I've heard is the Karen LP. Right. Yeah. I can see or hear that this is tied to Maurice as far as, you know, pool of influences and, and style. But this feels maybe a little bit more prog-like, like stretching out a little bit more. Were you kind of feeling yourself in terms of wanting to stretch out a little bit more in the songwriting? Well, with Solution Unknown, it was, I loved playing with them. There was more like a, an excuse to hang out with my friends and just make loud music. It was more of a social thing, I feel like, for me than it was. To me, Slint was my real band, and I had all these other bands that I did for fun. Is Bush League one of those as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think any band I play drums with, that's more because I enjoy it. It's just for fun. And I play drums in Bush League and, you know, different bands in Louisville. No, I haven't heard any of their stuff. Fetor EP, the Sicko EP, and Discography. I don't even know. Well... I don't want to talk shit about it. I don't even Please. know if it's worth oh, now listening that you, to. Now that you open the door, you gotta. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I haven't heard any of that stuff since I did it. I don't know. I can't imagine that it's that great. It was just, you know, it was another thing. I just did it for fun. But again, you know, sometimes the things you do just for kicks can be the best thing you ever did, you know, in hindsight. Because there's no pressure, you wind up doing some of your greatest work. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like Spiderland was just, once again, I'm jumping ahead to Slint, but the documentary that came out, I'm, I'm sure you watched that. I had never thought about it before, that we'd practiced probably for more than a year, almost every single night, five songs, <laughs> you know, yeah. like for more than a year. You know, it was just something we did every single night. And then we went in re and recorded it all in a weekend. Like all the music was done in a weekend. I, and I think the vocals too. The next weekend we mixed it. The footage from the basement. You know, I saw Breadcrumb Trail at CineFamily. I think you were there. I don't think. Oh, we, right. Yeah, yeah. All you guys were there, I think. I hadn't seen it since then, except I watched it again yesterday. The thing that stayed with me is Brit's shirtless scrawny figure looking like he's younger than a teenager yeah yeah i think it's good morning captain he's doing those like do do yeah and like almost like half asleep or being guided by the music almost like the music's playing him that footage of you guys is insane it's impossible that these are kids making this kind of music doing it so effortlessly that is seared into my brain forever it's one of the strangest 
pieces of tape I've ever seen. I, I mean, I don't even like I never thought it was weird at the time, but I don't right. know what we were thinking, really. It was almost like we were a band that was just just wanted to practice. Practicing and songwriting was more important than playing shows and recording, for sure, which is the opposite of like every single band. Yeah, we we just loved it because literally Spiderland is six songs. And one of the songs, Donnie and Man, we never even heard or played before we went into the studio. So for over a year we practiced every night they just the same five songs every time we i showed up at practice it was problem solving you know it was like how are we going to get from this riff to this other riff you know and we would have to try out every single idea maybe the bass could do something so we'd spend that night trying out bass ideas that didn't work so the next night we try maybe the guitar could do something so we spend that practice trying out guitar ideas all right we are banned from talking about slint from now on. okay yeah right, yeah yeah right, i'm so. already jumping ahead Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three times a week music deep dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all. Discographies, the private press with Paul Major. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. All right, so yeah. let's talk about the Pajo flavor packet. Okay, the ramen okay, flavor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you know we're kind of picking up in 96. Let's start with Tortoise. So we're talking about two records here. But those two records that you were a part of are probably the other pocket of your career that's equally totemic as Slint, like casting that big shadow. Millions Now Living Will Never Die and TNT are huge monolithic works these works that are in your catalog do they feel albatrossy to you how do you feel about these huge works versus you know the more what's the word i'd be looking for here a lot of the stuff that you did as papa m and still continue to do to me are just as important but they have a less all caps right yeah i'm always just doing my best in any given moment i don't know what record's going to be or what recording or song or anything is going to be considered totemic or appreciated later. But my same approach for, for millions and TNT, it was kind of like what I, how I approached everything. I took everything seriously in front of me, but uh, millions, like just everything clicked. I still love that record. I still love TNT. You prefer one or the other? I think I prefer millions. I, it's personal for me because it's all about that time period when I was living with them in Chicago as well. But I liked millions because we were really just feeling around in the dark and just kind of like we're still trying to figure stuff out there's your noi influence too by the way yeah noi influence there absolutely yeah yeah the krautrock stuff was huge for us then and i and it wasn't really that well known i guess in the mid 90s it was still kind of like a culty record collector thing you know no real internet and i was just learning about can right around that time it's funny the antiquated vibe of looking back and figuring out how you found out about some kinds of music just hearing a reverberation of an influence in a band that you liked. Yeah. You know, oddly at the time, because TNT is really considered to be this huge record and it didn't hit me at the time. Millions did. Millions, yeah. especially DJ'd. Is that a pronounce? I think we have, yeah, it can be DJ'd or Jed. I think we said Jed because it was less syllables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that one I loved and TNT just for whatever reason didn't hit me. This yeah. time around, I was in Santa Fe on our way back to the East Coast and I could not stop listening to TNT. It, it had never grabbed me the same way before. Now I have to say it's my favorite of the two. Oh, cool. I mean, I, I think I liked 
millions just uh, it was also an an all analog recording you know to think that all that stuff was done on tape is cool especially where it sounds like the cd is skipping i don't know if you know the story about that we couldn't figure out a, a transition it was really john mcintyre tried all these different things and we'd be like yeah that's cool it's like nothing was really blowing us away and then one night he just he had done so many tape edits that he had all this random tape on the ground and he just spliced them all together just randomly to see what it sounded like and that's what ended up being jed you know it was a dj that part where everything's skipping when we heard that we we're like holy shit you know like we knew that was it you know and well no i won't go to back to slim yet I'll, no, uh, no. No, yeah <laughs> it'll be like a swear jar kind of a thing totally yeah i'll pay you 50 cents every time i say <laughs> the s word <laughs> so how did, how did you wind up assimilating into the fabric of tortoise and i'm also curious if jeff parker coming into the ranks if that caused a certain amount of tension where you then left or if it was just naturally drifting out of the band i mean i naturally drifted out it was i knew bundy and uh, john mcintyre when they played with david grubbs and bastro and i really got along with them like i would stay at their place when i came to chicago and stuff and so i remember when it, the first tortoise record came out i was blown away especially at that time i was such a snob about current music i kind of hated everything that was happening at that time especially with grunge taking off i only listened to old music then i just discovered you know noi and and all that stuff was new to me and can so it was like all this exciting old music that i loved and everything that was current except for tortoise and stereo lab i just kind of didn't care about i like pavement a lot actually but it was yeah really tortoise and stereo lab were like my big bands that i really liked and then i was lucky enough to play with both of them but i think the peak for me with stereo lab had to be transient random noise bursts with announcements yeah yeah i know they get a lot of credit with dots and loops but to me dots and loops at, at that point had a ascetic almost hospital-like vibe yeah and it's no disparaging to mcintyre but i think it was mcintyre's influence i just like liked their noise influence better than yeah. I liked their hi-fi tests kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. I think they went into a, a different type of songwriting later, but yeah. that early stuff is so cool. And I like their later stuff too. It's just, there's something like just really raw and sort of pure about that early stuff, I feel like. And maybe less self-conscious that I like. Incredible things are happening in yeah. the world yeah and then it became very mannered later on and i like all of it but yeah. paying 33 and surreal chemist and all that stuff is very special oh yeah and that first tortoise album for me was like that and the, some of their eps were awesome and singles and then you know when bundy left they asked me to play with them and i ended up joining and moving to chicago by the time we were recording tnt i was still living with them in chicago and parker was playing with us as well and i they were planning an eight-month tour like for when tnt came out they went to tour for eight months and i just didn't want to do that like i wanted to just live with my girlfriend in kentucky and like and not travel you always had options yeah which is surprising but i'm so lucky in that way you know I, I definitely am lucky. Like, I have nothing but gratitude about that. I knew before getting on the don't. phone with you that you had to be a nice person because nobody works as often as you and is a prick. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Some people would probably dispute that. They'd say I, I am I a doubt prick, it. But... I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt like it was a, an okay time to leave because they already they had a great guitar player now with Parker, you know? Did you and... feel redundant? Did you, did you feel hurt that why would they bring this guy in i thought i was doing a pretty goddamn good job no i didn't at all i mean it was such a it was such a loose just forward thinking band yeah. that it, it didn't feel weird we could i could have stayed in the band and it would have been fine with me and parker we could have toured for eight months and i could still be with them i also think i have played in so many bands you know of course i have to ask myself how come i'm not like other people i just can just have one band for my life you know like why do i feel this need to leave bands you know because I've been doing that since I've since I started, you know, leaving bands too, as well as joining them. I'm I'm leaving them, and I, I was like, why do I do that? And when when do I know it's right to do that? And I think it's when I think I I feel like it's okay once once I really understand a band. Like if a, if I don't understand a band, it's like I want to stick with it and try to figure out the mystery. Like what is like how does this work and what are they thinking? You know, like and then once I kind of get it and they're kind of on their way to 
you know, they don't, I do feel like, okay, they don't need me anymore, you know? Um, and I, what I, what I'm doing, I can just show to anybody, you know, like when I left Interpol, I loved learning all those bass lines and I figured them out because Carlos was a great bass player. And I, yeah, I would sit and I love playing them like him, like, cause I never have any excuse to do like the octave disco bass lines, you know? yeah, yeah. but it's really fun, you know? And, um, and he was doing them. So I, I was like, I was like, oh, these are so much fun to play. And after doing it for a year, I was like, okay, I want to, I want to go home and be a dad now, you know, like that was fun. And so I just figured out all the bass lines. And I, I was like, I can show this to anybody that can play bass now. So I showed them to my friend, Brad, and he's been playing with them since. You have had only one spouse, right? I guess since, since the nineties, I I've lived with different women over the time. Yeah. I haven't been with one person. But I'm guessing you never were excited about dating five people at once, right? Oh, no, no. No, I was always a long-term relationship, dude. And I always wanted to take it as far as I could. It's another part of my extremism, I think. If a girl was like, let's move in together, I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was the opposite of the non-committal guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I never understood these non-committal guys because I was <laughs> like, yeah, take it as far as you can. You right. know? And the, if they were like, let's get married, I'd be like, Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And I think, you know, a lot of this comes down to like a philosophical view towards life, you know, like my attitude has always been we're here to gain experience, so why not yeah, just just get the experience. But you know, most people as far as bands go, it would spill right. over into friendships, spouses, everything, jobs, the whole deal. But somehow you were able to only segregate it to that aspect of your life, to just just bands. Otherwise, you were a stick and stay guy. Man, that's a good question. I don't think it was segregated to just bands because even like my musical interests were like that. When I started playing with Dead Child in 2005, like yeah. I just fully got into metal at the expense of everything else, you know? A lot like you, it was like, I just obsess and I get really into one thing. Not at the expense of everything else, but everything else does fall to the wayside for sure. And I don't know if I'll pick it back up again. I don't remember where I pulled this from, but I have a quote of you saying, I, I just always wanted to sing, but never liked my voice. Still don't. Will Oldham was really supportive and helped me find the courage to start singing. Not sure if he knows that or not. I guess I wanted the lyrics to be unsettling to justify my shitty voice which is insane, number one, because your voice is very affecting. There was a time when I wanted to reach a certain emotional state. It would just be you or Will that I would listen to. Oh, wow. Around, around the whatever mortal time. Yeah. I wasn't really connecting as much with Bonnie Prince Billy. Right. Hollis stuff had a very clear emotional runway, you know, especially yeah. days in the wake. Yeah. So it's great to hear that it was Will that had the effect on you because I believe you were really the only guy giving him a run for his money with that type of music at that time. That early 2000s, I, I do think that there weren't a lot of people doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that is true about my voice. I'm starting to get better at appreciating whatever strength my voice has and weaknesses and not obsessing on the weaknesses. Will was a huge influence. I think it was around that time, it was post-Tortoise, I'd done Live from a Shark Cage with Papa M already, yeah. the all-instrumental double album. And I was just like, man, I, I, I just want to hear Everly Brothers, you know, like, I just want to hear somebody sing to me, simple chords, nothing flashy, like just in standard tuning, just, I, I just want somebody just to keep it real for me, you know, and I want to make music that is closer to what I'm listening to, you know, because... I wasn't really listening to instrumental music back then, but I was still playing the Life from a Shark Cage songs. And I was like, man, I feel um, like a charlatan or something, you know, like I'm just going backwards every time I play these songs, you know, because when, once once the show's over and I get in the van, I'm listening to like Hank Sr. or something. I'm not listening to A Minor Forest or, or like, you know, like whatever instrumental band was around at the time. Were you listening um, to John Fahey? Was he an influence on you as well or no? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I liked, I loved his guitar playing i wasn't obsessed to the point where like jim o'rourke 
obsessed on John Fahey. Like I liked him and I appreciated him, but he was one of a million guitarists to me that were great. You know, Derek Bailey and all these people were amazing. But like Jim O'Rourke would sit down and learn how to play all these Fahey songs. And I, I never went that far. I kind of wish I did just to have the technique. You're on three of those early Will records. Joya, I See a Darkness and Ease Down the Road. Right. Definitely those are the transition records into the Bonnie Prince Billy Maybe, I don't even know if he sees a difference between Palace and Bonnie Prince Billy. I heard a real difference. Yeah, I, th I do think there's a difference between Palace and Bonnie. But I, I guess to explain Will's influence, he was always around, you know, like with Maurice. He was Maurice's biggest fan. He went with us on the part of the tour with Sam Hain in the mid-80s. And then, so he was always around. He was going to be the original guitarist in Slint, or second guitarist. Except for the fact that he couldn't play guitar then, right? It, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was, yeah, he didn't know how to play yet. But like, so he, his presence was always huge on all of us, you know? And like, after Slint broke up, the very first Palace Brothers re recording or record was single was a drinking woman single, or was it the Ohio Riverboat? Ohio Riverboat. That's the first. Yeah, I think. And that was all the Slint guys came to Bloomington and recorded it, except, you know, Brian McMahon would play drums and I would play bass and Britt would play guitar, you know? So it was like all of us were playing why different is, instruments. Why is everyone from Slint on There Is No One What Will Take Care Of You Except For You? I was at an art college in England that year. Okay. And that's when they recorded. Yeah. So I'd done the singles. And I missed that record. But when I got back, I picked up with Will and went on tour with them. I was in like the first incarnation of Palace when we toured. And yeah, just played with them a bunch all throughout the 90s, early 2000s too. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with Will. He really encouraged me to sing, like I said. And I, I just liked singing, but I didn't think I was any good. I think I was just really tired of instrumental music and being known as the instrumental dude. You know? Even Slint, which is, you know, they're not instrumentals, but they kind of are. Yeah, yeah. All the Slint songs started off as instrumentals and right. a lot of them we didn't even know that there were lyrics or we didn't hear a lot of the lyrics until right before the recording so i'm sorry that was my fault that time yeah that's all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right so then we have royal trucks you're on three song ep and you actually co-wrote the United States versus one 1974 Cadillac LD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is totally fucking swinging and badass as hell. That was right when I left Tortoise. I immediately went straight into Royal Trucks because I was really into the Drag City stuff at that time. And, you know, Silver Jews and all that stuff. Smog, I was super into all that. And Royal Trucks was one of them. For some reason, I think it was after being in Tortoise for so long, I just wanted to be in like a rock band, you know, like yeah, just, yeah. just straightforward, you know, even though Royal Trucks is really obtuse in a lot of ways, you know, it, it wasn't a straightforward rock band at all, really. But at least when it came down to it, the, yeah, it it's was, kind of a cerebral through the head reimagining or retake of a notion of classic rock, right? Totally. Yeah. I'm glad you noticed that because a lot of people don't catch that. Like Twin Infinitives. Have you ever heard that record? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. It's just so freaky. You know, it's so far out. You wouldn't think it's like classic rock influenced at all. No, because um, it sounds like the tapes themselves have been dragged through literal feces. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they yeah, it sounds like New York junkies who who knows what they've been up to. They were definitely and, and I'm sure they still are like really obtuse musicians and really intellectual. Like surprisingly, like you you would think that they were just like these guzzy junkies, you know, yeah. but Neil Haggerty has a photographic memory. Like he can shut his eyes and recite a, a letter he wrote to Lydia Lunch in 83 or something, you know, like like he's reading it, you know. And they told me about where they had a residency at CBGB's at one point where it was just Neil and Jennifer and their backup band was one of those wind up monkeys that just like, to, you know, they put all these effects on it and stuff. I was like, man, they're, it's just such a freaky band. You know, they're always doing something against the grain for sure. So you being in them is kind of like George Harrison hanging out with Delaney and Bonnie, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like totally. down from like a really, you know, much more uptight day job. Yeah. Yeah. And John Theodore is in that band. I don't know. There's one live show from one of the tours we did on YouTube. It's like the entire show. Maybe it's at CBGB's. The live shows are really cool. And as a fan of Psych, you'll appreciate this. Like 
almost every song had this moment where it was just everybody freaks out, you know, and the beat drops, like the, the drums are going crazy. The guitar is going crazy. Like I would just hold it together on the bass, but every song went to Mars at some point, And then we all came back in together and it was at the same time. It was, somehow. Yeah, it was really fun. It was great. But you were in that band for a blip, right? It was just one song on one EP. You were you yeah. weren't on the other two, right? I didn't do much recording with them. It was almost all touring in Europe. It was it really was like a blink and you miss it kind of moment because yeah. it was primarily a live thing. Same with Stereo Lab. I didn't record with them as primarily live. And then okay, so the next thing here is definitely the most what the fuck pocket of your discography, which is Zwan. Yeah, yeah. All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, David Pajo, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator, and much more. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you regular as it were. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. No need to stop now because we're on a roll. Join us as we descend down, down, down on Discography's week-long Paho Pussy Deep Dive, wherein we train the microscope down on an embarrassment of bonus Paho and a staggering private press platter that freely promotes psychedelic discovery. Another way to dive even deeper is to get thee directly to the Pavement series and the Lou Barlow series, where I Gen X'd myself to death from episodes 49 through 62 with the help of Lou himself and the ever-congenial Bob Nastanovich. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday continues with our abundance of Paho with the Patreon-only wildcard episode, The David Paho Patreon Collection, Volume 1, in which Paho waxes prosaic on the importance of Dylan's blood on the tracks, amongst other favorites from his collection, as well as the randomly wacky spiritual practices that keep us both sane. Not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's The Private Press, Pussy's 1969 masterpiece, Pussy Plays. In addition, I can't recommend enough that you tune in to our brother podcast, Vintage Annals Archive. This week, it's episode 32, Mojo Nixon. The interview focuses on the new doc, The Mojo Manifesto, The Life and Times of Mojo Nixon, and it was recorded live and released as is. It's co-hosted by an earful of wax, as well as the great Rich Wexler, who's doing amazing work over there, so don't miss it. That's the Vintage Annals Archive. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, May 26th, we're coming at you with part two of Discography's nine-hour Holy shit interview with David Paho. And without revealing too much, there's no question that part two is the most emotionally raw and open interview in which I personally have ever participated. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Graffiti.